Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name's Liv. Uh, not that connected to the crypto space, um, but I was a professional poker player for a number of years, um, and now sort of, I guess I'm just very interested in the, the, the world of sort of existential risk and the sort of risks facing our civilization moving forward. Um, and today I'm going to be talking to uh, Austin Hill. Austin uh, is the former CEO and co-founder of the Bitcoin infrastructure pioneer uh, Blockstream. Uh, and he's also the former CEO uh, of Cyber Cypherpunk Punk. I can never say that. Cypherpunk tech startup Zero Knowledge Systems. Uh, and I'm also joined by Salim Ismail. Uh, Salim's the author of the book Exponential Organizations. Um, he's also the founding CEO of Singularity University, uh, the head of innovation of former head of innovation of Yahoo, and uh, current board member of the X Prize. So two very qualified people sort of talk about. I guess, yeah, what, what has been on my mind a lot recently is sort of the tension between the, the, sources, the sort of forces of centralization versus decentralization. And particularly in, if you put it in the context of this paper uh, that recently came out called the Vulnerable World Hypothesis, which essentially explores the fact that it seems like as we build more and more incredibly powerful technologies, um, and democratize these technologies into the hands of more and more people in the world. At some point, it makes our world very vulnerable because that means that technically world-ending technologies could be in the hands of, you know, right now we have like nuclear weapons uh, and that's about it that could end the world and those are in the hands of a small number of people. But if this trend continues with things like AI and, and synthetic biology and whatever new technologies are on the horizon, um, these could be incredibly powerful technologies in the hands of thousands or maybe even millions. And that puts us in a very vulnerable spot. So the sort of flip side to this then would always be an argument that we would need more kind of like centralization in terms of surveillance and control over the population, which is also a terrifying prospect to me. Um, so I'm really curious to hear like what both of your thoughts are on like how we navigate this tension. Um, particularly, you know, here at a conference which is all about decentralization. Sure. Um, thanks, Liv. Um, I, I read the same paper and had a lot of the same concerns. Um, and I guess exasperating is as we see these technologies being developed and distributed and democratized, they get smaller, cheaper, faster. Um, with a massive breakdown in trust in institutions. Um, you know, whether that's Wall Street and money, whether or not that's government. Um, and when we see uh, populations or groups that have, you know, distrust of centralized institutions are facing, you know, whether or not it's economic uh, inequality or health, access to services, healthcare, um, all of a sudden the idea that they have access to technologies to express their anger or to act out becomes that risk factor. And so, uh, and if the only answer to that is mass surveillance, it further creates this cycle of distrust. Right. Like we saw this recently, I think in Canada, where, you know, a, a modern G8 country was, you know, criminalizing speech they didn't agree by seizing bank accounts and denying. So, you know, a lot of the basic freedoms I think we depend on 
also depend on access to financial services, freedom of speech, freedom to assembly, uh, opposition of a political party. If you're denied access to money or, you know, under central, uh, central bank digital currencies, denied access to anything or tracked, this surveillance that is necessary becomes very, very dangerous because disagreeing thought can become criminalized. And I think the opportunity or potential third way out are some of the experiments that are happening with Bitcoin, both for in addressing wealth inequality, but also some of the experiments around computer security, around innovations in cryptography that might give us other ways of balancing that mass surveillance versus individual rights. Um, so I've got two or three thoughts here. The first is we are at a very vulnerable point. Uh, in, throughout human history, it's always been true that advanced technologies cost a lot. And only a government or a big corporate lab could afford to do R&D, launch new products and services. Today, for the first time in human history, advanced technologies are very cheap. Solar energy is cheap, sensors cheap, the blockchain is open source and free. Um, the fact that Vitalik has created a close to half a trillion dollar ecosystem as a single person is inconceivable to 99% of people in the world, right? Uh, so that's a very new phenomena. The, the, uh, at a very metaphysical level, we've noticed that we've swung from a central to decentral pendulum throughout human history to ratchet ourselves forward. Um, Today, you know, we used to have the, the church running everything in a very centralized way, and then scientific progress, the scientific revolution decentralized it all. Today, we run on a very centralized model. In many cases, the military-industrial complex, the corporation, Judeo-Christian religions are a pyramid-type structure, and this is all, all this decentralization breaks all of that. I disagree with the vulnerable worlds hypothesis in one way, which is that We've seen throughout history that given the choice, most people will do the right thing with technology as opposed to the wrong thing. Um, and there's a great piece of data around this. When eBay and Craigslist first became popular, first time in human history, somebody could do a fraudulent transaction or a constructive transaction. You could master email address pretty quick, easily. So what's the actual ratio? And so researchers and, and anthropologists have been studying these systems, okay? What is the actual ratio of fraudulent? And it turns out consistently across these, the actual ratio is somewhere around 8,000 to one. So for every one bad transaction, there's 8,000 positive ones, which gives us unbelievable optimism for the future. If you have a new technology like drones, 8,000 people will do the right thing and some, and it, then it's easier to spot the bad actors. So there's an incredible optimism around that. The problem is, uh, to the point, is the one person <laughs> can do really bad things. Right, if and someone how do you can create a, you know, some terrible pathogen or some nanotech or something that, right. it just takes one. That's it just takes thing. one. Well, and the concern there is society as a whole has not proven itself histor in recent history, especially in democracies and where populism leads and to react to those events in a very good way. We saw after 9-11, uh, you know, this huge push to, you know, uh, the Patriot Act, rolling back civil liberties, rolling back people's rights, um, and there's this kind of constant erosion of privacy every time one of these events happens. And so striking that balance takes, I think, someone saying, okay, there are other paradigms. This is not a Faustian bargain, or this doesn't have to be kind of choice of A versus B. And I think some of the actual technology underpinnings of reducing the risk of that happening are actually being explored in cryptography. 
So, you know, how do we develop secure systems where whether it's AI or rule-based systems can actually operate? There's tons of work being done in AI safety, but if we can't build secure computing or secu secure multi-party computing, none of that will ever work. Right. So, like, the underpinnings of that, if we start talking about how do you develop synthetic biology or chipsets that can't be abused, that might have some sort of rule system, so that we don't have to have massive surveillance around lab and every university that ever does things. Or those the garage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of those, that research is being done right now and has been pioneered by Bitcoin because computer security was largely totally ignored when what could be stolen was just computing time or copies of your digital photos. Now that we have trillions of dollars of assets that are fungible and transferable, the world is learning how to build really secure computer systems pioneered by this industry. So I would argue that you actually need to go full over to full decentralized, uh, learn what that's like, and then start crawling back from that. Because you can't stay on the authoritarian centralized structures because they'll just be bad actors on this technology as we're seeing globally. I think you have to go all the way over, which is why the blockchain technologies are so important around this. To make a real impact, go full decentralized and then start moving back from that. What would that look like though? Give, like in what sort of scale? So for example, Austin and I have a bunch of discussions around this. Uh, we run the world on nation state paradigms now, right? And it just doesn't work for the future. Uh, nation states move too slowly. During the pandemic, the big countries universally all messed it up. The small countries, which are much more agile, were able to navigate much better, right? And the same way that big companies have a tough time dealing with the agility needed for today's world, all the advantages with startups today. Uh, we think the future is in city-states or localized communities operating on a decentralized basis. Because if you have vertical farming, solar energy, uh, uh, water extraction out of the atmosphere, you don't need central infrastructure. Uh, and therefore, you can be a lot more resilient around that. There's no centralized power grids, all of that stuff. So I think we can move to that very quickly. What's exciting about the blockchain for me is you can scale trust. Well, and we've never been able to scale trust before. And part of that environment, if you think about the city-state, it's also a massive potential risk accelerator or a risk reducer. If someone's living in a community where they have friends, they have jobs, they have some economic opportunity because they can transact all around the world. With the internet now, they could be earning income, uh, you know, transacting in Bitcoin. They could have, you know... If for people who believe that having non-sovereign money like Bitcoin can protect them against inflation as a savings technology. But you could actually say, okay, I don't need to move to New York. I don't need, I could live in a community where I can afford to live, where I have friends, where there is some stable infrastructure, where power has been deregulated, potentially with the help of some of this industry because the massive change in you know, power deregulation and uh, shifting of the decentralized uh, grid. So you can start to say there is a responsive city-state or city government that can be responsive to my needs, and I have the freedom to move from city to city. So at that level, you can start to see more direct democracy, more involvement in who we choose as uh, local leaders, um, more representative government, where generally we've seen at the state or the nation-state level, right. the, the lobbying, the corruption, not that it doesn't exist at other layers, it's just a much harder problem to fix. Right. right. I mean, when I look at Trump or Brexit, it's not left versus right, it's urban versus rural. Yeah. Right? It's exactly the conversation, that's the split. And if we can figure out how to decentralize well, 
then you can navigate and scale trust. And now you can operate with individuals doing different things and being philanthropic. I mean, Liv, you should talk about what you're doing with your charity work, because you're, you're taking your own action and creating kind of potentially a massive, huge difference just by a single actor operating to bring together the group outcomes. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm in, involved in a sort of branch of philanthropy known as effective altruism, which is basically like applying kind of uh, almost like a business, well, I, I call it a poker thinking mindset to the act of, you know, like trying to answer the question of like, there are so many problems in the world. How do we figure out which of our limited resources we should, you know, which ones to be prioritized given that we have limited resources? Um, and so that means you have to, you know, essentially really crunch the numbers and try and answer really hard questions like, you know, how do you weigh the value of a life in this country versus that country or this many, you know, this ecosystem versus this many human lives and this sort of thing. These, you know, so it's really trying to quantify these seemingly unquantifiable questions. But the thing is, I think we have a moral imperative to do that because if right. we don't, we're just like stabbing in the dark. And the fact of the matter is, is that like some of the biggest issues are actually the most neglected um, because they're not easy to explain or, you know, they, they're not easily condensable into a hashtag and that kind of stuff. Um, and some of them just require a lot of, like, long research to, to even try and, you know, like the AI safety problem. You know, that's, that is not something that you can really just stick on a market and, like, mm -hmm. let markets figure out. It, there's a lot of um, sort of academic research that needs to be done first, and that requires philanthropic funding. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my approach to this. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you think, you know, what could the intersection of crypto and philanthropy look like? So we've seen examples of cryptography being used to uh, cross borders, like recently in the Ukraine, uh, funds were distributed and actually got on the ground much faster in an environment where banks were shut down, SWIFT was being right. shut down, um, and some of that even cross borders from Russia into the Ukraine for people in Russia who disagreed with what their government were, was doing. So as kind of the idea that financial, the weaponization of our financial system, I think everyone recognizes can be a very, very dangerous thing for world trade and building trust. And we've seen that now occur. It's happened in the past with sanctions. Uh, that was kind of the preferred tool, um, but we're seeing it happen more and more often. And so for a large number of people, they've seen that play out and so they're not going to put themselves at risk of being subject to sanctions in the future if they want to become bad actors. Um, the philanthropy part of it, yes, it provides a mechanism for fundraising, but I also think one of the interesting aspects, we are seeing a massive transfer in wealth. Um, it was mentioned this morning, Mark uh, Yusko uh, from Morgan Creek Digital on his panel was talking about the financial services industry as a whole, since the Medici's and the invention of uh, double entry bookkeeping 500 years ago, was the last major innovation in banking. We've seen automation and computers come, but really for the last 500 years, this $7 trillion industry has emerged with very few competitors, aside from just regulatory arbitrage that prevents small players and has weeded them out over time. So as that industry goes to some contraction, because it will get smaller, the same way the newspaper industry got smaller with the advent of the internet. We saw classified ads, Craigslist shrunk a $6 billion industry for classified ads down to 800 million, but they owned 80% of it, right? So we will see a new emergence of wealth creation and wealth transfer, and my hope 
and it is a hope, is that some of the new actors will not try and repeat the mistakes of the past. Because some of these new, the new wealth creation, I think, is thinking more in the terms of what you saw in the poker community when you ran your charity. What is effective altruism? What are the issues I care about that are not being addressed, whether that's civil rights, wealth inequality, um, you know, uh, better representation of, you know, individual rights. Um, and those things need more attention. And I think some of the fundamental think systems level thinking, we were talking about this earlier, cryptocurrency requires people to actually think from a first principles point of view. Mm. Where does money come from? Right? Like, you know, we printed $4 trillion, and I'm sure many of you might have heard this from your family, saying, well, if you can just print $4 trillion, why don't you print enough money to pay for my taxes? Like, why do I even have to pay taxes? <laughs> and it caused people to really start thinking, it, where does this money come from and how does money work? Right. And so the wave that I think anyone here is exploring and on the path to awareness and some education is there are constraints. Money doesn't come from anywhere. And when you do start thinking of that systems level thinking, it forces you to start thinking what other problems need systems level thinking? What other problems need to be thought of in terms of thinking and bet? To steal any, yeah. <laughs> it's a great title of a book, by the way. Great book. Yeah, great book that talks about thinking and bets. Because most of what we do is we don't think about it, but we are making a decision every time we're betting on a future outcome in everything we do. I, I wear shorts tomorrow, I'm betting it's not going to rain, right? <laughs> and so, so much of our lives is trying to predict the future, and that's hard when the game is rigged because the fundamental way most of our society works is on a currency system that is a house of cards. Mm. And as that house of cards collapses, more people, I hope, find the safety or the lifeboat that is Bitcoin right. and start to achieve this deeper systems thinking. I mean, the, the, this is a, a, one of things where the current structure is, is a house of cards that's just about ready to collapse, right? Um, one of the most fascinating observations I've seen over the last few years is that over the last 20 years, 40% of American corporate profits went to Wall Street. 40%, that's a staggering number. That's literally sucking the money out of the system into one place. And I think what crypto and decentralized structures break, burst that bubble, and then look at Axie Infinity, it's a wealth redistribution model, right, basically. And it allows now a new model to appear. Uh, and it'll take some time because regulatory is against us, et cetera, et cetera. But it's inevitable. And by default, that new generation, many of us sitting in this room, are thinking altruistically in how do we make a difference? How do we uh, structure things in a more quantifiable way, et cetera? And I think that's incredibly exciting. And we don't see that coming from the old models at all. Right? Well, and so one, of the, so one of the theories that's out there uh, is that as we move from this inflation-based policy, our government is really operating on this target of inflation and promoting inflation for growth. And part of that requires this never-ending printing of money and the rising debt levels. And it requires us as a society to just buy into the fact that we all have to consume more to grow an economy. And the counter-argument that crypto and some people have is that actually we should be in a deflationary cycle. The advance of technology and the, should be bringing prices down. Things should be getting cheaper, faster, and better the same way computers are, right? Like, you know, 18 months Moore's Law, telecommunication, faster, faster, faster. 
And part of the reason why those things do not get cheaper and more accessible to the world and improve everyone's quality of life is the fact that the money printer and the inflation is how we continually rise our economy. And so when we start talking about globally, how do we deal with rising food pricing? How do we deal with rising energy pricing? How, right now, the government is applying its fingertip on the scale to say more pricing, heavier pricing, fed by more free money from the money printer. And country by country, that system is failing. The people on the other side of the currency wars. Right now, that's Turkey. Right now, that's Lebanon. Right now, you know, the country by country, they're seeing that mass inflation and hyperinflation causes them. El Salvador was recently, they have to move off the US dollar. They have to develop local solutions, local economies, and get things cheaper, locally sourced. And so even an issue like climate-related problems or pollution, um, I think there are some benefits that this industry will be empowering by for forcing people to think about local farming, local energy sources, scarcity as opposed to consumption as the main driver in our society. Mm. Jeff Booth, who um, yeah. we think of as like the chief economist of the digital decentralized world, made a comment that Bitcoin gives you money velocity without uh, debt. Today, we have money velocity only by increasing more, printing more money and having more debt. Uh, and the, the observation he made that blew my mind was that over the last 40 years, every dollar increase in global GDP has come at the cost of increasing global debt by $4. So, yeah, so we're go paying to, $4 go to, for go to $1. A, go to a bank and say, lend me 1000 and I'll bring you back 250 and see how quickly you get marshaled at the door. And yet all of our global governments are operating on that base. And, and, and cryptocurrency basically bursts that bubble which is great, needs to be burst. Yeah, and I highly recommend, by the way, if you haven't been exposed, Jeff Booth's book, The Price of Tomorrow, talks about these two exponential curves. Yeah. I mean, people are very bad at exponential math. What, do you, what is your opinions on the role in, in, is there a way to incorporate crypto into that? We, we, we analyzed 14 major UBI experiments, universal basic income, for the Andrew Yang campaigned on that, for those of you who aren't aware in this last election. Um, and the, what we found was th there were three that were true UBIs, and that the rest were partial, like the Finland one was a very, etc. The more pure it was, the more outstanding the results. Um, it's staggeringly, we're pretty clear that we get to that. The challenge, though, is to go from a job, union, labor, taxation uh, system like we have today to that is such a huge leap. We have no confidence in our public sector getting us there. Right? Yeah. There's too many roadblocks. It'll, it'll require the crypto world. You've talked about as a, a Bitcoin bond model, right? Yeah. It'll require some structures like that to start laying the bricks for that new world. So but, one of the experiments in UBI was actually done, or a comparable was done on actually a uh, First Nations uh, reserve where they had casino income from, you know, casino franchise, and they were redistributing it to members of their tribe and community. And they set up an incentive-based system where, you know, there was a basic social le level where you had food and, uh, food and housing security. But if you wanted to and went and got educated, came back and worked in the community, uh, went and did volunteer work, you could actually move up and get more incentives. So the ability to use some form of capital or income to create incentives, I think, is a very good one. The danger there is you don't want people just you know, continually tax, taxing one part of society to pay for another part of society. 
doesn't create a base social safety net, it creates a ever accelerating cycle. Is this the Manitoba one? Uh, well, I, I, I've seen a couple, okay. but the, so my, the, the my, cap. There was, a, there was a UBI experiment in Manitoba in Canada where they ran it. It was so successful that after a couple of years, the government realized you don't really need government if you have this model and shut it down, <laughs> which is the bad thing to do. But, yeah. but we know now the outcomes, like entrepreneurship explodes under that model, yeah. right? You cover people's Maslow's hierarchy of needs down to the second level, uh, and then everything else becomes really easy. It's a, it's a really well, magical outcome. And so on a global basis, figuring out these ways to create so UBI is a basic uh, floor is one model. There's a lot of people who are discussing creating way more financial education and financial inclusion where people over time as they go through kind of, whether it's high school or some sort, are able to participate in a capitalist structure such that uh, you know, maybe at a certain age they kind of inherit or get vested somewhat like stock options vest in startups. Right. And so, uh, and a lot of those, especially, I mean, we take it for granted, I think, in North America and some industrialized countries, we have access to banking. We have access to, you know, debt. We have access to, uh, generally, education funded by debt. Um, doesn't always lead to the best choices for people who go up and ring up $300,000 worth of debt <laughs> going to university, but we have access to that. Places in Central America, Latin America, uh, big parts of the world where they are unbanked, they have no infrastructure, there is no system of institutional law, that's where a lot of the risk factors start to emerge in this vulnerable world hypothesis. Right. Because those people will become migratory. Economic and climate related migration will happen. And when those people are left on the outside looking in to wealth or opportunity, it creates this very real sense of, well, if you won't let me in and have, give me equal opportunity, I'll show you how unfair the world is. Right. right. And that's what we need to prevent. Disenfranchised population. Yeah, disenfranchised yeah. population who now have access to technologies of asymmetric damage. Yeah. That person having access in Latin American and University to a synthetic biology machine says, I want to go build the next version of COVID to bring the world to its knees is the danger we're trying to prevent. Right. And so, yes, you can have better governance of those technologies using better cryptography, security technologies that don't empower a central government to be the George Orwell, but we can also uplift those people's economic opportunities such that they don't feel so disenfranchised. Right. I, think, I think we have to do this. It's not a question of it's the best thing, whatever. I don't think we have a choice. Two million Syrian refugees over the last few years almost broke Europe, yeah. right? The climate crisis will result in 200 million uh, climate refugees. We are not going to be able to cope with that, right? I live in Miami right now because we ran the numbers and worked out that in about 20, 25 years, Miami's probably gone. So better enjoy it while it's there is some of the rationale. Um, and it's clear watching that you have to... You Buying a house in Miami is risky. <laughs> <That's laughs> thinking in bets. Well, yeah, that's, you know. So uh, I think we have no choice but to move down this path and decentralize and move to new models as fast as possible because the uh, coming wave of pressure of technology breakthroughs, um, risk factors, uh, all of that will, will kind of kill us if we don't. We have to do it. So we have one minute left. What call to action would you give to the people listening here of how they can best put their minds to this problem? Um, I would say pick the most exciting uh, impact project that gets you excited and figure out how to add blockchain to it.
and accelerate it? <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, put your own mask on first, right? Like, you know, the changes that are about to happen over the next 10 years are going to be very disruptive to people's families, people's local environment. Um, we will all run into a situation where we have a family member dealing with medical disease, dealing with food insecurity, dealing with housing insecurity. Um, I, I, I just believe that because, you know, the shifts that are happening in society are going to be very rapid. And when you can start to say, okay, I can take care of myself because I've gotten some of my own education and house in order, I can take care of those immediately around me, it gives you the opportunity to also say, you know what, I can also take care of my neighbor. I can think of something in my community that I care about where I do have the resources to make a difference, even if that's just volunteering, if that's dedicating some time, dedicate, if you're a web programmer, dedicating some of whatever your unique skill set that you bring to the world is, you can find a way to contribute to that without having to make a huge difference because the more we create those local bonds where people see there's someone who cares about me, right? Even if it's a stranger, that's one less person who may feel so disenfranchised and so hopeless about some of the, you know, it bleeds, it leads news on society. It gives them a reason to say, you know what? I'm gonna stay engaged either in this community or in facing my problems because someone out there cares and we need more of those. Right. Turn to your neighbor and give him a hug. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, thank you, uh, Salim, uh, Austin. And I'd say my call to action as well is just go, uh, go read the vulnerable world hypothesis. It'll say, send you on a rabbit hole of uh, sort of the wider, like, existential risk and uh, thinking, um, and it should get your sort of cognitive juices flowing. Uh, yeah, cool. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank, thank you. you.